Chapter Four of Amusement Only. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roeg Eleven. Amusement Only by Richard Marsh. The Strange Occurrences in Canterston Jail. Chapter One. Mr. Mankell declares his intention of acting on magisterial advice. Oliver Mankell was sentenced to three months' hard labor. The charge was that he had obtained money by means of false pretenses, not large sums, but shillings, half-crowns, and so on. He had given out that he was a wizard, and that he was able and willing, for a consideration, to predict the events of the future, tell fortunes, in fact. The case created a large amount of local interest, for some curious stories were told about the man in the town. Mankell was a tall, slight, wiry-looking fellow in the prime of life, with coal-black hair and olive complexion, apparently of Romany extraction. His bearing was self-possessed, courteous even, with something in his air which might have led one to suppose that he saw, what others did not, the humor of the thing. At one point his grave, almost saturnine visage distinctly relaxed into a smile. It was when Colonel Gregory, the chairman of the day, was passing sentence. After committing him for three months' hard labor, the colonel added, during your sojourn within the walls of the prison, you will have an opportunity of retrieving your reputation. You say you are a magician. During your stay in jail, I would strongly advise you to prove it. You lay claim to magic powers. Exercise them. I need scarcely point out to you how excellent a chance you will have of creating a sensation. The people laughed when the great panjandrum is even dimly suspected of an intention to be funny. The people always do. But on this occasion, even the prisoner smiled. Rather an exceptional thing, for as a rule it is the prisoner who sees the joke the least of all. Later in the day, the prisoner was conveyed to the county jail. This necessitated a journey by rail, with a change upon the way. At the station where they changed, there was a delay of twenty minutes. This the prisoner and the constable in charge of him improved by adjourning to a public house hard by. Here they had a glass. Indeed, they had two. And when they reached Canterston, the town on whose outskirts stood the jail, they had one, perhaps it was two, more. It must have been two, for when they reached the jail, instead of the constable conveying the prisoner, it was the prisoner who conveyed the constable upon his shoulder. The warder who answered the knock seemed surprised at what he saw. What do you want? Three months' hard labor. The warder stared. The shades of night had fallen, and the lamp above the prison door did not seem to cast sufficient light upon the subject to satisfy the janitor. Come inside, he said. Mankell entered, the constable upon his shoulder. 
Having entered, he carefully placed the constable in a sitting posture on the stones, with his back against the wall. The policeman's helmet had tipped over his eyes. He scarcely presented an imposing picture of the majesty and might of the law. The warder shook him by the shoulder. "'Here, come, wake up. You're a pretty sort,' he said. The constable's reply, although slightly inarticulate, was yet sufficiently distinct. "'Not another drop,' he murmured. "'No, I shouldn't think so,' said the warder. "'You've had a pailful, it seems to me, already.' The man seemed a little puzzled, and he turned and looked at Mankell. "'What do you want here?' Three months' hard labor. The man looked down and saw that the newcomer had givies on his wrists. He went to the door at one side and summoned another warder. The two returned together. The second official took in the situation at a glance. "'Have you come here from—' Naming the town from which they had in fact come, Mankell inclined his head. The second official turned his attention to the prostate constable. "'Look in his pockets!' The janitor acted on the suggestion. The order for committal was produced. "'Are you Oliver Mankell?' Again Mankell inclined his head. With the order in his hand, the official marched him through the side door by which he himself had appeared. Soon Oliver Mankell was the inmate of a cell. He spent most of that night in the reception cells at the gate. In the morning he had a bath, was introduced into prison clothing, and examined by the doctor. He was then taken up to the main building of the prison and introduced to the governor. The governor was a quiet, gentlemanly man with a straggling black beard and spectacles, the official to the tips of his fingers. As Mankell happened to be the only fresh arrival, the governor favored him with a little speech. "'You've placed yourself in an uncomfortable position, Mankell. I hope you'll obey the rules while you're here.' "'I intend to act upon the advice tendered me by the magistrate who passed sentence.' The governor looked up. Not only was the voice a musical voice, but the words were not the sort of words generally chosen by the average prisoner. What advice was that? He said that I claimed to be a magician. He strongly advised me to prove it during my stay in jail. I intend to act upon the advice he tendered. The governor looked Mankell steadily in the face. The speaker's bearing conveyed no suggestion of insolent intention. The governor looked down again. "'I advise you to be careful what you do. You may make your position more uncomfortable than it is already. Take the man away.' They took the man away. They introduced him to the wheel. On the treadmill he passed the remainder of the morning. At noon morning tasks were over, and the prisoners were marched into their day cells to enjoy the meal which, in prison parlance, was called dinner.' In accordance with the ordinary routine, the chaplain made his appearance in the roundhouse to interview those prisoners who had just come in, and those whose sentences would be completed on the morrow. When Mankell had been asked at the gate what his religion was, he had made no answer. So the warder, quite used to ignorance on the part of new arrivals as to all religions, has entered him as a member of the Church of England. As a member of the Church of England, he was taken out to interview the chaplain. The chaplain was a little fussy gentleman, considerably past middle age. 
long experience of prisons and prisoners had bred in him a perhaps unconscious habit of regarding criminals as naughty boys urchins who required a judicious combination of cakes and castigation well my lad i'm sorry to see a man of your appearance here this was a remark the chaplain made to a good many of his new friends it was intended to give them the impression that at least the chaplain perceived that they were something out of the ordinary run then he dropped his voice to a judicious whisper what's it for for telling the truth this reply seemed a little to surprise the chaplain he settled his spectacles upon his nose for telling the truth an idea seemed all at once to strike the chaplain do you mean that you pleaded guilty the man was silent the chaplain referred to the paper he held in his hand eh i see that here it is written false pretenses was it a stumer we have seen it mentioned somewhere that stumer is slang for a worthless check it was a way with the chaplain to let his charges see that he was at least acquainted with their phraseology but on this occasion there was no response the officer in charge of mankell who possibly wanted his dinner put in his oar telling fortunes sir telling fortunes oh dear me how sad you see what telling fortunes brings you to there will be no difficulty in telling your fortune if you don't take care i will see you tomorrow morning after chapel the chaplain turned away but his prediction proved to be as false as mankell's were stated to have been he did not see him the next morning after chapel and that for sufficient reason that on the following morning there was no chapel and the reasons why there was no chapel were very curious indeed unprecedented in fact canterston jail was an old-fashioned prison in it each prisoner had two cells one for the day and one for the night the day cells were on the ground floor those for the night were overhead at six a m a bell was rung and the warders unlocked the night cells for the occupants to go down to those beneath that was the rule that particular morning there was an exception to the rule the bell was rung as usual and the warders started to unlock but there the adherence to custom ceased for the doors of the cells refused to be unlocked the night cells were hermetically sealed by oaken doors of massive thickness bolted and barred in accordance with the former idea that the security of prisoners should depend rather on bolts and bars than on the vigilance of the officers in charge each door was let into a twenty-four inch brick wall and secured by two ponderous bolts and an enormous lock of the most complicated workmanship these locks were kept constantly oiled when the gigantic key was inserted it turned as easily as the key of a watch that was the rule when therefore on inserting his key into the lock of the first cell warder slater found that it wouldn't turn at all he was rather taken aback who's been having a game with this lock he asked warder puffin who was stationed at the head of the stairs to see that the prisoners passed down in order at the proper distance from each other replied to him anything the matter with the lock try the next warder slatter did try the next but he found that 
as refractory as the first had been. "'Perhaps you've got the wrong key,' suggested Warder Puffin. "'Got the wrong key?' cried Warder Slater. "'Do you think I don't know my own keys when I see them?' The oddest part of it was that all the locks were the same, not only in Ward A, but in Wards B, C, D, E, and F, in all the wards, in fact. When this became known, a certain sensation was created, and that on both sides of the unlocked doors. The prisoners were soon conscious that their guardians were unable to release them, and they made a noise. Nothing is so precious to the average prisoner as a grievance. Here was a grievance with a vengeance. The chief warder was a man named Murray. He was short and stout with a red face and short stubbly white hair. His very appearance suggested apoplexy. That suggestion was emphasized when he lost his temper. Capable officer though he was, that was more than once in a while. He was in the wheel shed, awaiting the arrival of the prisoners preparatory to being told off to their various tasks, when, instead of the prisoners, Warder Slater appeared. If Murray was stout, Slater was stouter. He was about five feet eight, and weighed at least two hundred fifty pounds. He was wont to amaze those who saw him for the first time, and wondered, by assuring them that he had a brother who was still stouter, compared to whom he was a skeleton, in fact. But he was stout enough. He and the chief warder made a striking pair. "'There's something the matter with the locks of the night cell, sir. We can't undo the doors.' "'Can't undo the doors?' Mr. Murray turned the color of a boiled beetroot. "'What do you mean?' "'It's very queer, sir, but all over the place it's the same. We can't get none of the doors unlocked.' Mr. Murray started off at a good round pace, Slater following hard at his heels. The chief warder tried his hand himself. He tried every lock in the prison. Not one of them vouchsafed to budge. Not one, that is, with a single exception. The exception was in Ward B, number 27. Mr. Murray had tried all the other doors in the ward, beginning with number 1, tried them all in vain. But when he came to number 27, the lock turned with customary ease, and the door was open. Within it was Oliver Mankell, standing decorously at attention, waiting to be let out. Mr. Murray stared at him. Hmm. "'There's nothing the matter with this lock, at any rate. You'd better go down.' Oliver Mankell went downstairs. He was the only man in Canterston Jail who did. "'Wow, this is a pretty go,' exclaimed Mr. Murray, when he had completed his round. Two or three other warders had accompanied him. He turned on these. "'Someone will smart for this. You see if they don't. Keep those men still.' The din was deafening. The prisoners, secure of a grievance, were practicing step dances in their heavy shoes on the stone floors. They made the narrow, vaulted corridors ring. "'Silence those men!' shouted Mr. Jarvis, the second warder, who was tall and thin as the chief was short and stout. He might as well have shouted to the wind. Those in the cells close at hand observed the better part of valor, but those a little distance off paid not the slightest heed. If they were locked in, the officers were locked out. "'I must go and see the governor,' Mr. Murray pursed his lips. 
Keep those men still, or I'll know the reason why. He strode off, leaving his subordinates to obey his orders, if they could or if they couldn't. Mr. Paley's house was in the center of the jail. Paley, by the way, was the governor's name. The governor, when Mr. Murray arrived, was still in bed. He came down to the chief warder in rather primitive disarray. "'Anything the matter, Murray?' "'Yes, sir, there's something very much the matter indeed.' "'What is it?' "'We can't get any of the doors of the night cells open.' "'You can't get what?' "'There seems to be something the matter with the locks.' "'The locks? All of them? Absurd.' "'Well, there they are, and there's the men inside of them, and we can't get them out. At least I've tried my hand. I know I can't.' "'I'll come with you at once and see what you mean.' Mr. Paley was as good as his word. He started off just as he was. As they were going, the chief warder made another remark. Oh, "'By the way, there's one cell we managed to get open. I opened it myself.' "'I thought you said there was none.' "'Ah, there's that one. That, that's that man Mankell.' Mankel, who is he? He came in yesterday. He's that magician. When they reached the cells, it was easy to perceive that something was wrong. The warders hung about in twos and threes. The noise was deafening. The prisoners were keeping holiday. Get me the keys and let me see what I can do. It is impossible that all the locks can have been tampered with. They presented Mr. Paley with the keys. In his turn, he tried every lock in the jail. It was not a work of a minute or two. The prison contained some three hundred night cells. To visit them all necessitated not only a good deal of running up and down stairs, but a good deal of actual walking. For they were not only in different floors and in different blocks, but the prison itself was divided into two entirely separate divisions, north and south and to pass from one division to the other entailed a walk of at least a hundred yards. By the time he had completed the round of the locks, Mr. Paley had had enough of it. It was not surprising that he felt a little bewildered. Not one of the locks had shown any more readiness to yield to him than to the others. In passing from one ward to the other, he had passed the row of day cells in which was situated B-27. Here they found Oliver Mankell, sitting in silent state, awaiting the call to work. The governor pulled up at the sight of him. Well, Mankell, so there was nothing the matter with the lock of your door? Mankell simply inclined his head. I suppose you know nothing about the locks of the other doors? Again, the inclination of the head. The man seemed to be habitually chary of speech. What's the matter with you? Are you dumb? Can't you speak when you're spoken to? This time Mankell extended the palms of his hands with a gesture which might mean anything or nothing. The governor passed on. The round finished, he held a consultation with the chief warder. "'Have you any suspicions?' "'It's queer,' Mr. Murray stroked his bristly chin. "'It's very queer that that man Mankell should be the only cell in the prison left untampered with. "'Very queer indeed.' "'What are we to do? We can't leave the men locked up all day. It's breakfast time already. I suppose the cooks haven't gone down to the cookhouse. They're locked up with the rest. Barnes has been up to know what he's to do.' Barnes was the prison cook. 
The cooks referred to were six good-behavior men who were told off to assist him in his duties. If the food were cooked, I don't see how we should give it to the men. That's the question, Mr. Murray pondered. We might pass it through the gas holes. We should have to break the glass to do it. You wouldn't find it easy. It's plate glass, an inch in thickness, and built into the solid wall. There was a pause for consideration. Well, this is a pretty start. I've never come across anything like it in all my days before. Mr. Paley passed his hand through his hair. He had never come across anything like it either. I shall have to telegraph the commissioners. I can't do anything without their sanction. The following telegram was sent. Cannot get prisoners out of night cells. Something the matter with locks. Cannot give them any food. The matter is very urgent. What shall I do? The following answer was received. Inspector coming down. The inspector came down. Major William Hardinge, a tall, portly gentleman with a very decided manner. When he saw the governor, he came to the point at once. What's all this stuff? We can't get the prisoners out of their night cells. Why? There's something the matter with the locks. Have you given them any food? We have not been able to. When were they locked up? Yesterday evening at six o'clock. This is a very extraordinary state of things. It is, or I shouldn't have asked for instructions. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. They've been without food for twenty-one hours. You've no right to keep them without food all that time. We are helpless. The construction of the night cell doors does not permit of our introducing food into the interior when the doors are closed. Have they been quiet? They've been as quiet as under the circumstances was to be expected. As they were crossing towards the North Division, the governor spoke again. We've been able to get one man out. One. One out of the lot. How did you get him? Oddly enough, the lock of his cell was the only one in the prison which had not been tampered with. Hmm, I should like to see that man. His name's Mankell. He only came in yesterday. He's been pretending to magic powers, telling fortunes, and that kind of thing. Only came in yesterday. Hmm, he's begun early. Perhaps we shall have to tell him what his fortune's likely to be. When they reached the wards, the keys were handed to the inspector, who in his turn tried his hand. A couple of locksmiths had been fetched up from the town. When the major had tried two or three of the locks, it was enough for him. He turned to the makers of locks. What's the matter with these locks? Well, that's exactly what we can't make out. The keys go in all right, but they won't turn. Seems as though somebody had been having a lark with them. Can't you pick them? They're not easy locks to pick, but we'll have a try. Have a try. They had a try, but they tried in vain. As it happened, the cell on which they commenced operations was occupied by a gentleman who had had considerable experience in picking locks, experience which had ended in placing him on the other side of that door. He derided the locksmiths through the door. Well, you are a couple of keen ones. What, can't pick a lock? Why, there ain't a lock in England I couldn't pick with a bent air pin. I only wish you was this side, starving like I am, and I was where you are. It wouldn't be a lock that would keep me from giving you food. 
This was not the sort of language Major Harvinge was accustomed to hear from the average prisoner, but the Major probably felt that on this occasion the candid proficient in the art of picking locks had a certain excuse. He addressed the baffled workman. If you can't pick the lock, what can you do? The question is, what's the shortest way of getting inside that cell? Get a watch saw, cried the gentleman on the other side of the door. And when you've got your watch saw, inquired the major, saw the lock right clean away. Lord bless me, I only wish I was where you are. I'd show you a thing or two. It's as easy as winking. There's all us chaps a-starving, all for want of a little experience. A saw'll do no good, declared one of the locksmiths. Neither a watch saw nor any other kind of saw. How are you going to saw through those iron stanchions? You'll have to burst the door in. That's what it'll have to be. You won't find it an easy thing to do. This was from the governor. Why don't you take and blow the whole place up? Shouted a gentleman also on the other side of the door, two or three cells off. Long before this, all the occupants of the corridor had been lending a very attentive ear to what was going on. The suggestion was received with roars of laughter. The major, however, preferred to act upon the workman's advice. A sledgehammer was sent for. While they were awaiting its arrival, something rather curious happened. Curious, that is, viewed in the light of what had gone on before. Warder Slater formed one of the party. More for sake of something to do than anything else, he put his key into the lock of the cell which was just in front of him. Giving it a gentle twist, to his amazement, it turned with the greatest of ease, and the door was open. "'Here's a go!' he exclaimed. "'Blessed if this door ain't come open!' There was a yell of jubilation all along the corridor. The prisoners seemed to be amused. The official party kept silence. Possibly their feelings were too deep for words. "'Since we've got this one open,' said Warder Slatter, "'suppose we try another.' He tried another the next, and the same result followed. The door was opened with the greatest of ease. What's, what's the meaning of this? sputtered the major. Who's been playing this tomfoolery? I don't believe there's anything the matter with the lock in the place. There did not seem to be just then, for when the officers tried again, they found no difficulty in unlocking the doors and setting the prisoners free. End of chapter 1 of The Strange Occurrences in Canterston Jail.